like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And I want to begin this morning by simply thanking you for your financial giving. Your generous giving shows that you trust your leadership and that you have invested in the vision that we have for the church. We have a vision to enable you to worship as you have been able to do this morning. We want you to have an opportunity to pray and to praise the Lord and to sing songs of gladness and to feed upon God's word. And So thank you. Thank you for for giving to support that kind of a ministry. You provide the leadership. You provide the instruments, the sound system. You provide this building as a place of worship. We have a vision for lives to be changed through the gospel, that, that marriages will be rescued and will grow. We have a vision for the broken people to be put back together and that addictions would be broken and people who are sick would be visited and the saints would be encouraged. So thank you for for giving to support pastors who preach and teach and counsel and visit and disciple. We have a vision for many levels of discipleship in our church. We, we want to provide one-on-one discipleship, uh, which is coming through a, a material called Partners this fall. We're starting community groups to provide more intimate times of, of fellowship and outreach into the communities. We want more intense growth through uh, ministries like a d- discipleship training program. Your giving makes these things possible. We have a vision for more formal training and seminary education. I want to thank you for those of you who support Christ Theological Seminary. We desire to continue to have a a Christian education provided for K through 12. Thank you for supporting River Bend Academy. Our vision includes outreach and evangelism and mercy ministries. Thank you for giving to support things such as Project Warm and the giving of food and gifts to the poor at holidays. Gifts to the homeless throughout the year that are dispersed through the office. Thank you for the ongoing benevolence fund giving that you have throughout the year given that meets the needs of so many people in our body and beyond. You provide for food and shelter and Clothing and transportation to many. And there are events throughout the year that you support to give opportunities for outreach and evangelism. There's nothing glamorous about paying for the upkeep of a building. But it is the place where God makes all this ministry happen through His people. Most of those ministries are led or facilitated by your pastoral staff. We also have a vision for world missions. So thank you for giving to support the Montoyas in Honduras, for Didier in the Congo, for Nilo in the Philippines, 
And for the stringers in North Africa, thank you for sending boxes of goods to the children in the Philippines that we saw up on the screen with their smiles all glowing. There's so much that you do here through your giving. And I simply want to commend you and thank you and give glory to God for what He is doing through you. What I see here at Riverbend Church is grace-empowered, love-driven giving. We really don't preach on giving very much here at Riverbend. But today I want to teach on what I see, in fact, you're doing. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. They were already demonstrating love, but Paul urges them to excel still more. Here at Riverbend, we've only just begun to see what God With God, what is possible if we still excel more in grace-empowered, love-driven giving? So it's going to be helpful if we are motivated by some good examples. And that's just what God gives us in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Two chapters that he gave us to teach us principles of giving. There are great needs in the Jerusalem church. And the Apostle Paul is is writing to the churches and he's going around to churches and sending, dispatching people like Titus to collect offerings to relieve the poor and the suffering in Jerusalem. And in so doing, he commands, or rather commends, the example of the Macedonian Christians. And he urges the Corinthian believers to follow their example. And it's amazing to me that the Lord has used Paul to give us two chapters devoted just to talking about this gift and their giving. So we're going to work through these two chapters, and we're going to answer six questions about giving. First of all, what should be our greatest motivation for giving? Chapter 8, verse 9. We see that Christ gave himself for you and for me to make us rich. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's central to all that Paul is going to teach in these two chapters. The gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was rich in so many ways before he took upon himself a human nature and became a man. As the Son of God, he created everything, didn't he? And he owns everything. He sustains it all. He reigns over it all. He equally shared in the glory of the Father and of the Spirit. And he was worshipped as God. Then he became poor. 
By taking on this human nature, he didn't cease to be God, but he gave up this reputation, this acknowledgement of who he was. He gained the reputation of a human. He traded his kingship for his servanthood. We see what happened to him. We see, you know, at his baptism, he would have been thought of as just a common Jewish sinner who came to respond to the repentance and baptism that was preached by John the Baptist. He was driven out of his hometown and thought he was thought of being of being crazy by his family. He said, "The Son of Man has no place to to rest his head." And when we read the Gospels, we see that he was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was falsely charged of crimes. He was lied about. He was unjustly convicted. He was mocked and ridiculed and beaten. Crown of thorns pressed upon his head. He was made to carry his cross. He was abandoned to die a criminal's death on the cross. Between two thieves who would have been thought of as being just a common criminal. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He became poor for you and for me to make us rich. Now, when I talk about being rich here, I'm talking about rich spiritually, right? He doesn't want us to be, as the health and wealth gospel might try to teach us, he doesn't want us to be rich necessarily. Some people may be. But no matter how much money you have, it is no measure of your spiritual wealth. The point is that Christ makes us spiritually wealthy in so many ways. And one result is that he enables us to proclaim the gospel. Through which we have the privilege of being used by him to draw people to himself. With his blood he purchased a people for his own possession. And what are our riches in Christ? Well, there are many different passages that come together and they teach us that our riches include things like being elected or predestined before the foundation of the world. We're justified. We're declared to be righteous. We're absolutely forgiven for all of our sins. We, we are purchased. We are redeemed from sin and Satan. And we are reconciled with God, although we were aliens and enemies of God. We're adopted into his family. We become children of God. We're, we're being sanctified. We're set apart for his purposes. And we have the privilege of him making us more and more conform to the image of Christ. He causes his spirit to indwell us and empower us for good works that he's called us to do. We have a relationship with God. We have access to the throne of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. We can receive mercy and grace in any time of need, right? We have the promises of, of glorification, of seeing Him and being like He is. We have the, the promise of resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and heaven. We're rich, aren't we? And He was motivated simply by love. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And his love was set upon us simply by grace. We didn't deserve it, did we? His sacrificial, bountiful, generous gift of himself by grace, motivated by love, is the thought that permeates these two chapters on giving. Christ is the reason we give. Second question I want to answer is what is giving? Giving is a grace-empowered act. It's an act of grace. Just like we see Christ's gift of himself was. And Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Notice he says that it's the grace of God that has been given. He's going to describe their act of absolutely amazing giving in verses 2 through 4. But in verse 1, he attributes their act to the grace of God. In the New Testament, you see the word grace used in two different ways. On the one hand, it is the reason or the, the way our salvation is given. We don't deserve it. It's, it's God's unmerited favor bestowed upon us. But also the word grace is used for the, the power that God gives to us to live for Him, to be changed by Him, and to produce all of the good works that He calls us to do. Paul is saying that what the Macedonian believers did in their giving can only be explained by the grace of God. Look at what they did in verses 2 through 4 and you'll see why he would say such a thing. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That is an act of grace. That, that only God could be the explanation for how these people responded to this need. So consequently, this is what Paul calls their act of giving. He calls it an act of grace. Look at verses 6 and 7. It's translated in the ESV this way. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should compete, complete among you this act of grace. He calls it a, a collection, an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Have you ever thought of your, your giving as an act of grace? When you really give from the heart, it's because the Holy Spirit is producing in you a desire and a will to give. Isn't that exciting? To think about that God is God moving you to want to give this way. So you might ask a third question. What should I give? Well, even before I discuss money at all, 
learn from the Macedonians two other things that you need to give first. First of all, you need to give yourself to Jesus. Look at the Macedonians in verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. He gave himself to you and for you. We're to give ourselves first back to him. Giving yourself to God is the right response when you grasp what he did in giving himself for you and making you so spiritually rich. When God gave the greatest gift, he made the greatest purchase. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus purchased you with his blood. You belong to him. So what does it mean then, if we already are owned by him, to give ourselves to him? Well, I think Paul expresses it very well in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It, it's a mindset of recognizing that he bought us, that we belong to him, and therefore we give ourselves sacrificially as servants. He says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, we keep the mercies of God, we keep all that he has given us in mind. Then it says, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're to think about all of the richness we have in Christ and, and just present ourselves as an offering to serve Him, Lord. Take us, use us, and we worship Him. So the first gift we're to give is ourselves to Jesus. But after you've given yourself to Him, you can then give yourself to others. That's the second gift. Give yourselves to others. Verse 5, he says, They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See how that works? You give yourself to Jesus, you give yourselves to others. That's the Christian life. There's a song by the group, a new song. It's called Give Yourself Away. That's really how we ought to think about our lives. There are many things that mitigate against this, our, our sinfulness, our selfishness, but we need to keep reminding ourselves that we should be giving ourselves to Jesus and giving ourselves away to other people. We, we give of our time and our talents, our gifts, our abilities. We should give people our time to pray for them. We give of our possessions and our money. We give encouragement and exhortation, fellowship and comfort. Whatever makes you up, all that you have, whatever makes up your life, give it away to others. When you give yourself away, there's something that happens. You prove to people that you love them. Look at verses 8. And 24 of this chapter, after Paul urges them to excel in this act of grace, he says, I say this not as a command, 
But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. When you give yourself away as an act of grace, you're showing people that you genuinely love them. Verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Give proof of your love. It's easy to say, I love you, isn't it? I love you, praying for you, care about you. But we need to give proof. Now this brings us to the topic of giving our money. Think about how this changes your whole perspective of giving. If first of all, you're focused on Christ and His gift. And then you're focused on giving yourself and all that you are and all you have to the Lord for His worship and His service. And then you think of giving yourself away to other people. You recognize that Christ has given Himself in this way. You recognize there are needs and you have the opportunity and the ability many times to meet these needs. This Put you in a position to help people. Verse 14, it says of them, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there would be fairness. If everybody is grace-empowered and love-motivated, then there's not going to be any need that is left unfulfilled. We're going to have this reciprocal relationship where when you're in need, I help you. And when I'm in need, you help me. When there are, is a church, as a church as we have needs, we're going to fulfill the needs. And then you as individuals who make up the church, the church as a body should fulfill your needs. We just have this sharing. Isn't that a beautiful thing? A church that's that's all focused on Christ and all focused on giving ourselves to Jesus and giving ourselves away to each other and needs being met. Those are things to testify about. Those are things to, to just get in your mind when somebody helps you that this was an act of grace. In the book of 2 Corinthians, These collections that were being made that Paul's talking about are for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. They're suffering perhaps from famine or persecution. And so he sends people out to collect these givings. And today in our churches we might find these kind of relief efforts that we need to help with. I mean, just in the past year, you've seen devastation from hurricanes and floods and fires and earthquakes and even volcanic eruptions that have affected churches. And it's amazing to see God's people mobilized to give and to relieve people in their need. I mean, there are just testimonies strong across the land where churches have been used in the center of a town to spread not only aid, but also the gospel. And that's what we're about, right? These are opportunities. Giving yourself away is an opportunity to give Christ to people through the preaching of the word. We might also support missionaries who minister to the poor, like uh, the Montoyas 
in Honduras, anybody been there and seen the people that pretty much live at the trash heap? There was devastating flood, flooding when I went there once, and the churches were trying to just minister to people. Anilo in the Philippines, uh, Didier in North Africa. Many different needs and missions. Uh, we have our own benevolence fund for local needs. When we think of needs that we can give to, we often think of these more tangible, heart-tucking kind of needs. You know, people want to be part of something that, that they believe, they just feel really helps. But we also need to think of ministry as having many tangible needs that are not so glamorous. Like the chairs you're sitting in. The lights being on. The lights are on for the worship of God, the preaching of the gospel, singing praise, and then sending out people into the world to preach the gospel. Now here's another question we need to answer. What sins do I have to overcome to give? Well, the first one is covetousness. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. Paul writes, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may not, or so that it may be ready, get this, as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The New American Standard translates that last phrase as not affected by covetousness. I mean, it's, it's great and glorious if we can have the right focus. Christ, giving ourselves to Him, giving ourselves away. But then we see our stuff. We see our money. And we need it. We want it. Coveting is when you love what you have and you don't want anybody to take it. Or worse yet, when you desire what you don't have... And you're willing to steal or kill to get it. Obviously, someone with such a perspective is not going to be giving what they have away. If you're coveting, you're going to want to keep what you have and maybe even get more and not give it away to someone else. And so that's a sin that we can be very tempted to have. You can think of yourselves as, as having to provide for yourself so much that you don't have anything to give away. But that's to forget that God's the giver of everything. He's the owner of everything, even what you have. And He's the provider, and He can take care of you if you come to Him. Jesus has said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance... Does his life consist of his possessions? And in verse 33 of that same chapter, he says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The remedy for covetousness is to love Christ. To give yourself to Him. To to give yourself away. Depend upon the Lord to provide for you. This is something you need to search your heart about. I know I have to search my heart about. You know, I'm I'm not the best giver in the world. I have to continually... Read the word, to pray about, to to think about what can I give? And we're going to see that you've got a purpose in your heart to do this. But but treasuring Christ and his people is where to start. Another barrier to true giving would be legalism. In verse 5, he said that this should be a willing gift, not an exaction. In verse 7... He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. See, you shouldn't give as if it's an exaction from you. Or, or that it's, it, you're under compulsion to give. A spirit of legalism thinks, oh well, I, I've got to give, so here it is. That pastor sure laid on that guilt today, right before the offering. Why was his sermon before the offering? But guilt only lasts for a while, and giving based upon guilt will disappear when the guilt does. Legalism can also work the other way. I'm pretty good. Look at how much I gave. I think I'll mention that to a few people. You can think of your righteousness as based upon works, but that's not grace-empowered giving. That's not love-motivated giving. Now let me for a moment just address the topic of tithing. Tithing's the idea by most people of of giving 10% of your income. And... If you really study the Old Testament, you'll see that there are other tithes, and maybe it comes to about 23% of your income if you follow it all. And I'm not saying that people who tithe are necessarily legalistic, but, but it can be a form of legalism. And let me say that there are godly people, even in this church, who probably hold a different view on tithing than I do, and certainly I respect them. But let me give you my take on this. Question is, is giving 10% or a tithe of your income required? And I would say, no. I'd say there's a better way. And the reason is, is that the, the tithe was part of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the legislation giving, given at Mount Sinai to Israel. And what I'm going to say will apply to all of the laws of the Mosaic legislation. The law was given to Israel as a nation to make them a special religious and political entity, to make them distinct from all the other nations. And the New Testament is very clear that we are not under the Old Covenant anymore. When we take communion, we're celebrating the New Covenant. Galatians 3, Romans 7... Hebrews 9 and 10 and a lot of other texts indicate that we are not under the Mosaic law. The tithe required was actually given to the tabernacle and the temple 
and the Levitical priesthood. These things have all passed away. Jesus is our great high priest and the church is his temple. So I think it's clear, and we could go into greater detail, which we won't at this time, but it's great. I think it's clear that since the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled in and abolished by Christ, and since the tithe was part of it, then it's not required of New Covenant believers. When you read any passage of Scripture, you've got to think, where does it fall in the storyline of redemption? Especially, is it before the cross or after the cross? After the cross, the law of Moses is replaced as a whole package by the law of Christ. We see this in Galatians 6, 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 21. So I would argue that we are not required to keep any of the laws of the Old Testament. We only keep the laws that are repeated under the New Covenant. And Paul calls that the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, Galatians 5.14 tells us it is the law of love. That's what Jesus taught as well. He summarized the law in Matthew 22, 37 through 40 by saying that the law is all about loving God. That's what we've been talking about. And loving your neighbor. And the New Testament writers unpack what this love looks like in every area of life, including our giving. So we have, we have commands that establish how we love God in worship and in relationships with other people how we love our families, how we love the culture, how we love the church. So when it comes to the topic of giving, I don't believe the way to go is to think about it as a law. That we have to give a, a tenth or whatever proportion, but rather we should ask, how does love apply to giving? What 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 teach us is... A grace-driven love should be what impels our giving. So how should we give? Well, this is what the example teaches us in these two chapters. When the grace of God empowers your giving and love for God motivates your giving, and love for people gives you the opportunity for your giving, then you're going to see results like this. Your giving is first going to be done joyfully. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In verse 7 it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to be joyful and cheerful as you give. Only grace can bring about that kind of cheerful giving. Secondly, God wants us to give generously. Grace-empowered, love-driven giving will be generous. Verses 2 and 3, it says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth. 
overflowed in a wealth of generosity. In verse 3, he says, I can testify that they gave and beyond their means. Not just according to their means, but beyond their means. Wow, that's sacrificial. Grace does that. Love does that. I've experienced this many times in my life. People giving to me just in amazing ways. Somebody just said, you know, hey, I want to pay your way through seminary. (laughs) You sure? Okay. Somebody says, you know, hey, you need a car, don't you? Here's one. Wow. Only love and grace do those kinds of things. People giving big gifts to support the church or other seminary or or somebody paying for all the turkeys given away at Thanksgiving. I mean, those are kinds of things that you see here. Grace-powered, love-driven giving will also be done willingly. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 3 says that they gave of their own accord. Verse 5 says that Paul wanted it to be a willing gift, not an exaction. Chapter 9, verse 7, it says each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You need to decide in your heart. You need to, it needs to be willing. It needs to be of your own accord. We need to pray. Pray that the love for Christ and love for people and love for ministry will compel us to want to give. When you show up, you've already decided in your heart, you know, I want to give. This is how much I want to give. And I'm going to give it willingly. Grace-powered, love-driven giving is beggarly. Say, what? You see people all over Daytona sometimes begging on the street corner. What if they were begging to give you something? (laughs) Wouldn't that be weird? (laughs) Sign. Stop, I want to give you something. That's what they were like. These Macedonians, verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4, it says they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Don't you love it when you see that? Somebody saying, you know, no, please let me help you. Oh, I've, I've got to get in on that giving for that ministry, for relief of the poor, for support. Of whatever it is, building fun. Many, many needs. That's grace empowered giving, isn't it? When somebody's begging to be able to give. Be funny, somebody, you know, tackling the usher because the plate got passed. I gotta give. I hope we don't see that happen. Um Our giving should be readily done. We should be ready to give. Notice how Paul, many times in these passages, speaks about their readiness to give. Verse 11 says, So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it 
out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable. Chapter 9, verse 2. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Verse 3. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said to you, would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. I mean, it only makes sense, right? If you have this, this grace-empowered, love-motivated giving, you've given yourself to Christ, you, you want to give yourself away to others and for the ministry of Christ... It's your, you've purposed in your heart to give it. You're really wanting to give it. Then whenever it's needed, you, you're ready to give it. You've got to be ready. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we have a passage that gives us the basis for making a collection part of our service. Almost every service, part of our worship is giving to the Lord. Paul says, Now about the collection for the saints, you are to do as I directed the churches of Galatia. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a proportion or a portion of his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will be needed. So we should be ready to give, we should give regularly. And in chapter 8, verse 11, we see that our giving should be given completely. Paul anticipates that, that many things can interfere with actually giving, even with the best of intentions. Therefore, he says in verse 11, so finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So we've seen a lot about grace-empowered, loving, giving. What's going to happen if you do this? Well, let me just take you to the last paragraph of chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. First of all, God's going to keep on giving you more grace to give. Look at verse 11. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. He's going to enrich you to be more generous. And the needs of the saints are going to be supplied. We're going to have testimonies of that. Verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. And he goes on in that verse. But, but notice just he talks about the, the fact that the needs are being supplied. And because of this, people are going to give thanks all over the place. At the end of verse 11, it says, it will produce thanksgiving to God. Your giving produces thanksgiving. 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, God empowers, well, He saves people. Then He empowers the grace act of giving. He fulfills the needs of the saints and then thanksgiving goes up to God as an act of worship. 
And ultimately, God is glorified. He says in verse 13, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Why? Why are they going to glorify God? Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see, really you're showing that you're saved. You're showing you believe in the gospel. And he says, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Surpassing grace of God is upon you, River Bend. I can see it. And I thank God to be a part of a church like this. Let's excel still more. Paul ends this discourse in verse 15 and he says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He stands back and sees what Christ has done. Sees the people that Christ has saved. He sees the needs that are there to be met. And he sees the grace of God working in them and motivating them by love for Christ and for one another. And it's just a beautiful scene. It says, thank you, God, for this indescribable gift. I don't have words to even describe it. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. Just what all you do, what you have done in Jesus Christ to, to purchase us, to, to justify us and forgive us for our sins. And, to, and, you're, and you're making us into people who will glorify you by our service for you. One of those things is giving. No one can now give you, we wouldn't even try. But we thank you that you give to us in so many ways. And we pray that you would put upon our hearts ways in which we can bless others and support your ministry of the gospel through our giving. We pray that now our time of focusing upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ would cause us to just reflect and cherish this great indescribable gift of the cross and the resurrection. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.